All right, church, we are beginning this morning a brand new series at Compass through the book of Jonah entitled Summer at Sea. We're going to spend the rest of our summer diving into the minor prophet Jonah. Now, it's called a minor prophet, not because Jonah wasn't a big deal, but just because in the Bible, it's a really short book. That's why you have the minor prophets and you have the major prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, not because they're a big deal, they are a big deal, but not because they're a bigger deal than the minor prophets, but just because the space they take up in the Bible is much greater. And so we're going to be looking at the minor prophet Jonah this summer, and this morning we're going to learn from a sermon called Running from God. Anybody ever ran from God before? If you're alive and breathing in here, you should raise your hand because we were all running from God at one point in our life, and many of you maybe in this room still are. But we're going to go on a journey through the book of Jonah to see how God brings you and I face to face with his unrelenting desire to see sinners trust in him. Isn't that the good news of the gospel is that God has an unrelenting desire to see lost people turn from their sins and trust in him. Well, that is, in effect, at least partially, the message of the book of Jonah. And we're going to learn what happens when the people of God try to run away from a holy, perfect, just God. And so what we're going to do this morning specifically as we open up the book of Jonah, and I hope you do in your Bible right now, go ahead and open up to the first chapter of Jonah. And if you don't have a Bible with you or your phone, uh, back in the back we have some Bibles for you. If you'd raise your hand, one of our ushers would come bring you a Bible and you can follow along there. But specifically as you're flipping there, what we're going to do this morning is discover how God uses us to reach lost souls. That's That's part one, right? But part two is this which gets a little bit more funky in our Christian lives when these kind of things happen. But it's this, that God may even use calamity to restore those of us who neglect and abscond from the mission of God to reach lost people. Did you hear that? That it, it would be God's will to do things in your life that would, you would deem uncomfortable, maybe even dangerous and calamitous to get your attention to focus you back on God's will and his mission for his people. Isn't that, that's, that's a big claim, isn't it? It's a big claim that scripture teaches that God would do things like throw your ship into a raging torrent to get your attention. But that's exactly what we see God doing here. And if we pay attention closely in our lives, we see God doing to a lot of faithful Christians who find their way away from God's desire and will to be used by God. And what we're going to see is how yielding to God's sovereignty, you remember that, you know that big word, sovereignty? Well, if you don't, here, write down a definition, sovereignty. Uh, it's actually in the word sovereign that God reigns over, right? If you write down the word sovereignty, you'll see reign over in the word. And that is the fact of God's ruling power and his ruling capacity is that God reigns over all things. And so for you and I, it's to one, accept that God is sovereign and he rules under all things and then yield our ourselves underneath the sovereign authority and power of God in our lives. Now, that's crucial because as we're about to find out in Jonah's life, he didn't submit to God's sovereignty in his life, and he didn't avoid the consequences of his unwillingness to follow God. And what I want you to do is I want you to be able to avoid the consequences of a life that is unyielded to the holy sovereign God of the universe. Do you want to learn about that this morning? 
I want to teach you about that. And I hope that you, as much as me, have been, will be encouraged by this and you will be conformed and hopefully taught how we can live lives that are yielded to God. That way we can enjoy doing the will of God and not find ourselves outside uh, God's will for us and then Him having to bring us back in by the storms and trials that we'll often face when we're not yielded to His Word. So as we jump into the book of Jonah, that's what we're going to look at. And what I want you to do is look at the first two verses in the book of Jonah. It says... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Many of you probably haven't heard God verbally, right? Probably none of us in here, right? Have heard God verbally say, Arise, get up, and go to so-and-so and so-and-so. And you shouldn't be alarmed if that's the case. And here's why. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets much the same way that now God speaks through His Word. And so the reason that we don't have the prophets like we had in the Old Testament today is because we have all what God has wanted us to hear and to understand in the book that you have in your hand. That's the good news. Now, in the same way that we should read our Bibles and take it as God's Word and do exactly what it says is the same way the prophets functioned in the Old Testament. So what we read here, uh, that when God is speaking to Jonah as a prophet, saying, go to Nineveh and call out against it, He is preaching what we would call special revelation, or this is God's word to Nineveh. And so when we read this, it's it's more than just a story of uh, God sort of speaking to someone. This is actually what God's special revelation is going to be to this people in Nineveh, the same way that this Bible that we have in our hand is God's equally authoritative special revelation to you and me. So in the same way that God wants the Ninevites to heed the word that he's going to hear, the same way that God wants us to heed this word that we're teaching and reading this morning. So that's what you need to understand. Something unique for you to understand about Jonah is out of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Jonah is the only prophet recorded who went to another country and preached to another people. Now, there were prophets who spoke against other countries in Israel and said things about other countries while they were talking to Israel, but this is the only prophet who leaves Israel and goes to another country, to a pagan people, to preach a message directly from God to them. Now, that's special, and we won't get into all of it this morning, but you need to write a little question in your notes and ask the question, why? Why is Jonah the only one? What is specific about that? And what good was that for Israel that Jonah went to a pagan country to preach a message of God? That's a question that we'll answer throughout this series, but it's one that you should have asked by now, and I hope you did. All right, back to the point of the message is this, that Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian nation. Now, if that doesn't ring a bell, I'll help you a little bit. Uh, Jonah hates the Assyrians. Actually, Israel hates the Assyrians. The Assyrians are very evil, wretched, bad people. I mean, Assyria was some of the most evil, ruthless, wicked people alive during this time. And God had sent this weak, measly little prophet to go preach to those wicked, evil people. I mean, this is how evil the Assyrians were. The Assyrians would, as they conquered villages and cities, that they would take people and fillet them alive. Right? I mean, as they were living and breathing, they would take them and they would cut them open and fillet them alive. They would also take people and they would rip their limbs off as they were still alive. And they would even rip their lips off of their mouths so they couldn't speak. 
I mean, think about it. I mean, this is the kind of people that God is sending Jonah to go preach this message. And remember what the message is, right? Go to Nineveh and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I mean, God wants to go pronounce judgment on this very, very evil, evil people. And God wants to use Jonah to go and preach this message. Now, context, right? First sermons and sermon series is context, 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 context. So follow along with me. One other thing you need to know about Nineveh that you may not know if you're just reading the book of Jonah is uh, who founded Nineveh? Do you know anybody in here know who founded Nineveh? Nimrod. Do you remember Nimrod? At least your parents have probably said, don't be a Nimrod, right? And so that's how you remember Nimrod. Right? Nimrod uh, was, uh, came from uh, the sinful line of, of the early fathers, right? Uh, and he uh, founded the city first, the one that we call Babel. Now you know where I'm coming from, don't you? Tower of Babel, that was a mistake, wasn't it? Well, he was the king of that region, and he's the one who oversaw the Tower of Babel, that wicked people who tried to make themselves equal to God, right? These people who tried to build a structure to prove how significant and important they were. And so this same guy, Nimrod, also founded the city of Nineveh. And so not only was Nineveh evil even in the contemporary time of Jonah, to Israel and to the Hebrews, Nineveh was a very evil place even since its foundation because it was founded by such an evil person named Nimrod. And so as we're entering into learning about Jonah, learning about what this book has to say to you and me, those things are really important. Because we're not just talking about a prophet who just fleed from something God wanted him to do. Uh, he fleed from a people that he hated people that he wanted nothing to do with, and God had a message for him to give to people that he didn't want any part of. Now, I don't have to stretch this too far to say there's probably some people you don't care about, and there's probably some people that you don't want to be intentional about God's word to them, and there's probably people and countries and nations that you wouldn't be caught dead in preaching the gospel. And so if that's true about you, what I want you to do is don't be so harsh on Jonah right now until you're willing to be as equally as harsh about your own life and your own obedience to God's word for us to be the people who go and share the good news of Jesus Christ to them. All right? Now we're on the same page so we can jump in. All right? So here's what we're doing. We understand the Assyrians, how terrible they were, uh, and what God wanted to do in the life of Jonah to the nation of the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. Here's what we see. God's desire for Nineveh was not judgment. Now you see that, right? Because you see it right there. Go pronounce what? Judgment. Go, go call out against it. But we have to understand something about God's judgment. God wanted to pronounce judgment on Nineveh so that they would repent. So God's will for Nineveh wasn't judgment. It was deliverance. Now I want you to, if, if you're taking notes, you can write that even, that God's will for Nineveh was that they would repent and that they would receive deliverance from God. Here's why that's important. Uh, how many people have talked to people about God and uh, they, they say something like, well, God's just very judgmental or, he, or God just wants to judge me or Christians shouldn't judge, judge, judge. You hear that word all the time, don't you? Well, you have to understand that judgment is so important to God and to his word because if there is no judgment, there is no deliverance. Did you hear that? Right. If there is no judgment, there is no deliverance. Because if you're just preaching deliverance, 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 you have to ask the question, delivered from what? Right. If I don't have anything to be judged for, why do I need to be delivered from anything? 
Now, that's more interesting because when you talk to people about the gospel and God, is that not what they bring up? You need to be delivered. And they ask, from what? See, that's the problem with us and you and I preaching half the gospel, isn't it? That you and I like to preach about God's love and God's compassion and God's care for people. And aren't those so true? Isn't that so true about our God, the gracious God that we serve? And even Jonah even says that later in chapter 4, that he's a gracious and merciful God, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Praise God that we serve that kind of holy, majestic, sovereign God. But here's the problem. The problem is, is when we share that message, and that's all that we share, we can tell everybody in the world, and everyone leaves the room thinking they're fine, because you never actually told them that they need to be delivered from anything, because the God that you shared with them is fine with everyone, right? The God that you shared with them doesn't have a problem with anybody. But the problem is, is that we serve a God of justice, right? And we serve a judge, a just judge, who has to be perfect and exacting in the way that he judges the universe. And so we have to understand, when it comes to deliverance, we also have to preach judgment. And that was the goal that God had for Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach judgment. And it wasn't that God wanted to just tear apart a nation. You actually hear in this that God's desire was for these people. But you have to understand that God can equally be for people and can equally be there to judge people according to their righteousness. Do you see this? I mean, you have to understand that's the biblical view of justice, of judgment, and deliverance. Which is why it's important when you and I preach the gospel and we preach the news that God has given us to preach, that we have to say, God is holy, right? That he is completely separated Right? That we can't be with a holy God. We're unholy, he's holy. The, the definition of holy that we just sang about, God is holy, he is holy, that means that he is completely distinct from you and I. That when it comes to me and God, we are nothing alike. And because he is holy and separated, he can't be around people who are sinful and unclean. Now, that's God is holy. We have to understand that because God can't be around people who aren't those things, and yet God can still be compassionate for those people. But he can't be in relationship with these people. See what I'm saying, right? God is holy. God is just, right? Raise your hand if you want a just justice system. Anybody in here? Do we want, do we want justice here in America, right? We do, don't we? You desire perfect justice. You don't want people getting away with things that they shouldn't, right? Anybody? Right? You want people paying for their crimes, right? right? You want people, you want our country and our governing officials and our system to give people the exacting justice that they deserve. Everyone amen to that? Okay. But you don't want that from God. When God says that I can be around no sin, zero sin, God can be around zero percent of sin. But yet we preach this message to people that says God loves you and God cares about you and God, God just wants what's best for you. He does, but he's also a just God. And God, being just and perfect, has to give a punishment that fits the crime, right? So how many of you have lied in here? Well, this is, I love this interactive crowd, right? You've lied. How many of you have stolen something? Okay, good. All right. Uh, okay, you all deserve the justice of God, don't you? You deserve the justice of God. Now, what do we do? We know we're separated from God. We know we've sinned and been separated from God. So what do I do? Well, nothing if God is just, you know, these things over here. That Now everything's going to be okay. You know, God just loves you and he's merciful and he's kind. True statement. 
but he's also perfect and just. And let me tell you something. If God isn't just and perfect, he's also not merciful and kind and loving. Because just like you don't want a crooked judge, because a crooked judge isn't kind and isn't loving, the same thing goes for God. You can't both have a God who doesn't have consequences for sin and a God who is loving and just. Are we all on the same page there? Okay, that's why for you and I to be able to preach the whole message of the gospel, that he is holy, that he is just, and that he is loving, all three of those are required in the way that we must preach the gospel to people because leaving out God's justice and holiness is leaving out the gospel message altogether. And we got to understand that there is punishment for those who have never been reconciled to God. Right? There is judgment for those who have never had their judgment paid for. Enter Christ, right? This is why people ask, well, why did Christ have to die? Because judgment had to happen. Perfect justice had to be poured out, and perfect justice was poured out on a perfect person. You see, if perfect justice was poured out on a sinful person, what happened? They got what they deserved, right? When perfect justice is poured out on a perfect person, what happens? They didn't get what they deserved, right? They got what those of us who sinned deserved. And since we all agreed that we were all sinners in here, we understand that God punished Christ for the punishment that we deserved. And the biblical gospel is that all those who would turn from their sin and trust in that, right? trust in Christ, in his atonement, that big fancy word for Jesus took the punishment that was given for you. But Jesus took the punishment that was in, in God's book, right, that was designated for you. Jesus took it. Right? That's the whole gospel, and that's why God is love. Right? That's why God is love, because he says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You hear that, church? That's why the whole gospel is necessary. It's not just that God is loving. It's that God is perfect, holy, and just, and nobody can be in the presence of a holy, just God. But because he is loving, he has made a way. Okay, do you see the separation between that biblical gospel message and a lot of the gospel messages you hear in the world? Right? We've got to preach the whole gospel because you don't love people that you won't preach the whole gospel to. And it's the same issue Jonah was having because Jonah didn't want to preach the grace of God, even when the grace of God sounded a lot like judgment. Because Jonah knew something that we know, that God's judgment precedes God's deliverance. And if we're going to go and we want to see people delivered, we got to tell people there's a problem between them and God. And that's the same message that Jonah had to go preach in Nineveh, is there's a problem between you and God. And God has brought me to tell you the message that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. He didn't even give the whole, like, he didn't even give like, how is God going to fix this? And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But they knew God had come to give a message and to pronounce that message, and Jonah didn't want any part of it. And all I'm saying for you and I, we got to do this, and it's point number one on your outline if you're taking notes. You need to understand that God has a redemptive plan. Understand that God has a redemptive plan. And here's why that matters, because this is what I don't want you to get out of that. I don't want you to get out. God has this general plan, and his plan is for good for me, and God's going to do, he's going to give me the things I want. He's going he's to just do everything that I want. I'm not saying that God has this plan specifically for you that has nothing to do with anyone else. That's unbiblical. Does God have a plan for you? Yes. But God's plan for you impacts other people. And that's what you have to understand. And that's why I put God has a redemptive plan. It's not just a plan. It's a redemptive one, right? It means that you're involved in seeing other people redeemed to God through Christ. There's a redemptive plan. 
It's not just God's little plan for your little corner of, of your faith in your house, in your closet, in, in your home. I mean, this is a redemptive plan that transcends you, that's bigger than you. And that's what Jonah should have understood at the beginning. He understands it in chapter 2, but he didn't understand it in chapter 1. And what I hope is that you can understand it in chapter 1, so there is no chapter 2 of Jonah for you. right? That you can understand it from the get-go so that you can be useful for God. That you can be useful for his advancement of his kingdom to redeem people. So you don't have to be shipwrecked and swallowed by a big fish and taken and spit out on shore to get the, for God to get his point across. Right? I want you to see that God has a redemptive plan. And first, God wants to redeem you. Right? If you're in here and that may be the first time you've ever heard the gospel in your life, God wants that for you. And he says, if you want to do that, Jesus, when his, his first words, when he, when he enters into his ministry at 30 years old, is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's, I mean, people say, well, how, how do I get saved? Jesus said it was his first words. He's like, you want to get saved, you repent and you believe in the gospel. You turn from your sins and you trust in him. That's what God wants for every single person. And that's what God wants for you this morning. Now, if you've done that, right, if you're like, yeah, wholeheartedly, I've turned from my sins, I've trusted in Christ, I've trusted on the punishment that he took on my behalf, and his righteousness that he had, he imputed, big fancy word for saying he gave it to me, right, I gave him sin, he gave me righteousness, right, for those of us who have done that, God's not done with you, and that is the message this morning, is God's not done with you just when he saves you, because Jonah was God's person way before the book of Jonah was ever written, he was a prophet, That's literally the definition of God's person. He was literally the mouth of God. But he wasn't done with Jonah just being his man. He had something else he wanted him to do. And he wants to use redeemed people to preach redemption to the Ninevites of the world. God wanted to use Jonah to preach to Nineveh. And he wants to use you to preach to all the Ninevites of our world. All the people who don't know Christ, who have never heard that gospel, who have never responded to it, God wants to use you and me to go do that for a lost world. And if you've ever felt like you're longing for something more, you've gone to church your whole life, if you've never felt like you've belonged or felt like God's used you or felt like, fill in the blank, my question is, have you been preaching the message of redemption to a lost world? Because if you're not doing that very one thing, you miss the Great Commission. Right? When Jesus, the first thing he says in his earthly mission was what I just said, the time is at hand, the kingdom, or the kingdom is here, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. You know the last thing he said? Now go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. The first thing he says is you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And the last thing he says, now you need to go tell other people to turn from their sins and trust in Christ and help them grow in their faith. That's the, that's the message of the gospel. And that's the message that Jonah had received. And it's the message that you and I have received to preach redemption because God has pity for people who don't know him. Did you know that? Go to Jonah 4. If you're in your Bible, just go down to Jonah 4. Jonah 4, go to verse 11. Jonah 4, verse 11. And this is what God said. When Jonah didn't want to go, Jonah didn't, didn't want to do the work that God had called him to do, and this is what God said. God said, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? I love this part. In which there are more than 120,000 persons, I, like 
For you who think God just has a general redemptive plan, like God's just going to save people, God doesn't have a specific plan, he literally called out the number of people who live there. He's like, literally, I'm not just talking about people who are wicked and who have turned from me. I'm talking about 120,000 people. I'm talking about here's the number, and I know them well. I know the number of hairs on their heads. Right? I saw them when they were being intricately woven. We're going to read in Psalm 139 later. When they were being woven in the womb, I was there in their life, and they've turned from me. And I want to see them redeemed. And he says, there's 120,000 people. And here's, and here's the pity, right? That God says they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Right? We, we think that God's going to say, I hate these people. How dare, they, how dare they disobey me? And they go kill people made in my image. And they go rip people apart who are made in my image. How dare those people? Go tell them that I'm coming to get rid of them. That is part of the judgment, remember? That is part of the judgment. But that wasn't how he phrased it, was it? He says, I, they will receive my judgment if they don't turn from that. But here's my heart. And this is, God says, my heart is this, that I pity them because they don't know their right hand from their left hand. They don't know that what they're doing is blasphemy and sin against the holy God. And Jonah, you need to go tell them. I need you to go tell them because they don't know. And I have a pity. My heart is, is broken for these people who need to know the gospel, who need to know, who need to know the truth. And I love what he says at the end of this, in case you want to know how specific God was about his care for his creation. He says there's 120,000 people, and there's also a lot of cows. Are you kidding me? Like, how specific God is. He's like, and there's cows. And there's cows there. And, and if you've read the book of Jonah, do you know? remember what happens when Jonah preaches this message in Nineveh? And the people, they tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth, and they put ashes on themselves, and they repent. Do you know what else happened? The cows repented. The cows were wearing sackcloth and ashes. Like, I love this because like, we won't even go respond to God's call for us to be ambassadors and for us to go preach the gospel to people. And the cows repented in Nineveh. Like, there's cows doing more for the Lord than we are. You know, I know it's funny, but it should be funny and then it should penetrate your heart. Because the, the, the pagan Ninevites are like, well, if we got to repent, our cows need to repent. And God says there's 120,000 people there, and there's a lot of cows, and I'm here for them. Like, come on. Because how much should we be for people coming to know God? If you want to do that, and you understand that God has a redemptive plan, you need to do a couple things. The first thing is you need to have pity for lost souls. Right? You need to have pity for lost souls. That means when you're at HEB and somebody cuts you off, the first thing that you don't do is give them a whole lot of words that you shouldn't be saying and having anger towards them. What you should be saying is they don't know their right hand from their left. Of course they turned the wrong direction. They don't know which way is right and which way is left. But what about when it gets more serious? What about people who are trying to pass legislation and trying to be, oh, what about uh, pro-choice, Okay. What about countries that are taking over other countries in Europe? Okay, All right, It's one thing when someone cuts you off and you can just blow it off because you, they don't know the right hand from their left. What about the other people? What about the Ninevehs in the world? What about the Assyrians of the world who are going and they're conquering countries and they're tearing people apart? What about pity for those people? See, because that's really the issue Jonah's having. Jonah isn't mad at somebody because they cut him off in the, in the parking lot. Jonah is saying these people are deplorable, and yet God had pity for them. 
So regardless what or who it is that lives in this world, God has pity for people who don't know him, who don't know their right hand from their left hand. I've said it this way, like you, you get so mad at people who aren't Christians and you get mad when they sin as if they could do anything else. Right? What does a sinner do? They sin. What do redeemed people do? They redeem. Right? If I'm redeemed, I'm redeeming. I'm redeeming my time. I'm redeeming my life, my holiness, all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? None, none of that's my own. I'm not working it. The Spirit is doing it in my life. God has empowered me to do that. But it's, we should understand that if you're angry at sinners, you don't understand the Bible because the Bible says that while we were still sinners, I said it earlier, Christ died for us. Like, that's not bad biblical logic to say, well, those sinners, I'm just really mad at them. Okay? That's part of judgment, but judgment is for deliverance. And we need to be out there caring for people that live in New Braunfels. Am I there yet? No, okay, I guess I am. Which is, if you're coming to Compass Bible Church, right? If you're going to be calling Compass Bible Church home, here's your rules, house rules, okay? No more too many people in my city. No more too many neighborhoods going up around me. No more too much traffic. Okay, no more too many kids in my school, we're having to rezone, right? No more of that. No more. Because God has brought them here to hear the message of, of redemption, and you're here for it. All right, and even their cats and dogs that they put in strollers, okay? Even those. Right? All of these people are here for a reason. And you're not here to build your own little kingdom for the 50 years that you're left here on earth, and then you die. You're here to help redeem souls, that God would build His church. That's why you're here. So you need to get used to the fact that God has a redemptive plan for people. Pity lost souls. souls. And I just said the other one, don't be myopic. You know what myopic is? It's a big word for nearsighted. Right? I wear glasses because one of my eyes is myopic. And the problem with that is I can't see that far out of my left eye. And so what my left eye tries to do is just focus on the things that are right here. Well, the problem with that when I'm driving is there's so much out there that isn't right here in front of me. And I've got to make sure that I'm focusing on it or I'm going to be in deep, 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 deep trouble. So I wear glasses. Okay, and your faith is also often myopic. That means you're focused on the here and now, whatever you're dealing with, whatever your child is dealing with, whatever your spouse is dealing with, whatever you're going on right now, you're focused on those things. But you can't have a myopic faith and be used to do great things for God. Because God has a worldwide redemptive plan for people, and you got to put your, your glasses, that is the Word of God, that filter and that lens in which you see the world, you have to lift it up and take it serious if you're going to see what God's doing everywhere. Does God still have a plan for your individual life? Yes. Does God want to redeem your marriage and your kids? Yes. Okay, but you're often going to find the answer to it when you look further than yourself. When you look to God, he wants to see those things fixed because he wants you focusing on the mission of making disciples. So don't be myopic. Don't be so focused on the here, this moment. Look to see what God is doing everywhere and be a part of it. If not, we're going to do what Jonah does in verse 3. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, we see Jonah responding to God's call for him to go preach to Nineveh. He says this, But Jonah, after he heard the word from the Lord, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I want you to notice something here that Jonah does. Right? I don't want you to think that Jonah is a bad theologian. Right? As a matter of fact, I want you to think Jonah is actually a really good theologian, and what he's doing is very specific to his understanding of God. Jonah wasn't trying to not go... Jonah was not trying to keep God from working in the people in Nineveh, okay? Because that's what you're initially going to think, right? Jonah knows enough about God to know that God's sovereign and God's going to get the job done. Jonah was hoping that God would desire to use someone else and not him. And so that's why you see here that twice in verse 3, it says from the presence of the Lord, that he ran away from the presence of the Lord. Again, in the end of it, and he went to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You can underline those. I do in my Bible. Those are really two important phrases because we know that God's going to do what God's going to do, right? We all know that. God's sovereign, and God's going to get his job done. Uh, What you're doing and what I'm doing is we're just fleeing from the presence of the Lord, hoping that we're not going to be a part of whatever God's doing, which is the wrong choice to make for any Christian. Right? We've got to understand that God should want to use us because he has redeemed us for his good pleasure and that we need to do everything that we can to be in the middle of that and not trying to flee away from that like Jonah is. Because so, I want to show you exactly what Jonah was doing. Because Jonah, like I said, has good theology. He said, God, I know you're going to do what you're going to do over there. Just don't use me to do it. But he had a bad theology because he just assumed that God's I shouldn't say he had a whole bad theology. He had a bad theology in the idea that God, he knew God was going to do what God was going to do. His bad theology was that God wasn't sovereign over his individual life. And that's where he missed it. And that's where we miss it. We believe God's sovereign over the universe, right? Colossians 1, that, that Christ with, upholds the universe by the power of his word, right? We know that. But did you know that God is sovereign over every single thing that you do every single day? I mean, do you believe that the same way you believe that God spoke the world into creation and he's intimately involved in it? You're much more inclined to believe that than you are that God is sovereign over every millisecond of your entire being. Problematic. Because now you do what you want to do every day, but you just assume that God's going to make everything work out. It's like he is going to make everything work out, but he's also going to conform you to his will. And that's where it gets uncomfortable for Christians because that's where things get a little uh, friction and a little conviction here. And God starts doing things like he's going to do to Jonah to get you back to realize I'm not just sovereign over the universe. I'm sovereign over your life, your short life, your life that God says is fleeting and is like the morning grass. It's like a flower that fades. That's what, that's what your life is like. And God said, I'm still sovereign over that little thing. Because here's what he did. Now, I have a picture I want to show you. This is what Jonah actually did. I want you to see, go to Tyre right here, kind of where Israel was, would have, would have been, it was, yeah, was at the time, divided kingdom. Uh, you see there in Tyre, he goes down to Joppa to the south. And I want you to notice, Nineveh is 500 miles to the northeast, or 500 miles away. Jonah commits to going south about 50 miles, hop on a merchant vessel, and to go 2,000 miles all the way to Tarshish. And you're like, I'd like to go to Spain too, because that's really nice, and it's across the Mediterranean. It's a difference in understanding Old Testament geography and our understanding of geography. In uh, the Old Testament, right, in the Old, uh, Old Testament, how else would I say that? Uh, back in 800, 700 BC, from there to there is the extent of the known world. That is as far west as they thought existed in, on planet Earth. So what Jonah was actually doing, it wasn't just going to a nice Spanish city. I mean, what he was thinking is, I'm going to go to the farthest point away from here. I'm going to go to the end of the world. 
It would be like God saying, I want to use you to go to Seguin to preach the gospel, and instead you jump on an airplane and go to China. Because you're thinking, God, God is still going to do that, but he's not going to use me. Right? You misunderstood God. He's going to get you from China, and he's going to bring you back, and you're still going to do what God wants you to do. Right? That's the Bible. That's biblical doctrine. And this is what we see Jonah fighting against that, saying, I, what I'm going to do, God, I know you want to go do whatever you're doing over there in Nineveh, but I'm going to go that way, so maybe you'll just forget about me. I can do like a, a little sin juke and kind of go the other way, and maybe you'll forget about me. But what we're going to see is that's not at all what God does. <clears throat> but what I want to show you also is uh, how Jonah's theology was, was completely off. And when I say theology, another big word for this is his thoughts about God that were wrong. Right? His thoughts about God were wrong because he didn't realize that God was sovereign over his life, wanting it to desire to use him for his good purposes. I want you to look at Jonah 4.2. Jonah 4, verse 2. And he says, I'm going to go all the way to Tarshish because I, I don't want to go. And it really sums up to this, that Jonah did not have a heart for people. Jonah didn't have a heart for the lost. Jonah knew that God did, and Jonah didn't want any part of it. I mean, that's, that's what you see in Jonah 4 too. Listen to what he has to say to God. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding to steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Did you read that? He, Jonah knew that's what God was going to do. Even though that all we read in the first couple of verses is that God wanted to go pronounce judgment on Nineveh, Jonah knew, I knew that you're a gracious God, that you're going to pronounce judgment, but I know you're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and you relent from disaster. You wanted them to repent the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with Jonah and Nineveh. But in this context, Jonah. Jonah was the problem. Jonah had the heart problem. Right? What you've got to realize is all these people that we just talked about earlier, the, the deplorables, the people you don't want to talk to, the hateful people, the countries that are taking over other countries, the people passing legislation that you post on Facebook and, and Instagram about all the time, those people God has a heart for, and he wants to relent from disaster, and he wants them to respond to the gospel. And the problem is you and me who say we're just not going to be the ones to do it. Do you see the problem here? We're the problem. God's not the problem. We're the problem. God's desire is to relent from disaster because he is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It was Jonah that didn't want the grace of God to go to Nineveh, and it's us who don't want the grace of God to go to people who are the Ninevehs of our own world. Like You and I have such twisted hearts sometimes that we would rather see people perish and spend eternity from God than be reconciled to God here on earth. And that is the most sick and twisted thing that we could ever believe and think about a soul that was made in the image of God. Right? There are people in this room right, who celebrated at the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Amen, right? Celebrate. That's just a beautiful thing. And we all shake our heads. But yet, what are you going to do now that these people and these souls are here and they're going to be accountable to a holy God? You ready to pass some legislation for mandatory gospel conversations? No? See my point. What we're saying is we're myopic. Yeah, it's good that now we have to have people have to have life. People have the right to life. Amen. But now people have a right and a need to hear the gospel. And you don't just leave them at life. You have to lead them to eternal life. Right? It's not just that people are alive here. When they're just alive, they're going to have accountability and judgment before God. Our goal is to teach them what eternal life is so that they won't be judged at the coming of Christ. That we do have a God who wants to relent for disaster because he has steadfast love and he has mercy and he's a gracious God. 
But we have to be people who want the grace of God to go out in our city, and we're willing to be used by God to be those people. It's getting the hype in here this morning. Because you know that's what God wants us to do, right? I mean, right? I mean, you read the Bible, you open the Bible, and it's very clear His expectations for us, for Christians, right? And I want you to jot down 2 Corinthians 5.20. Right? It's literally God's command that we be the people that God would use to see people who don't know Him come to know Him. 2 Corinthians 5.20. You jot that down. Here's what it says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? It's an official representative. Right? They're the person who represents countries and nobility, the people who, like, I'm going in the stead of, and me in my authority and in my life officially represent that country or that person. Okay? We are, according to God's word in 2 Corinthians, God's official representatives for Christ. And here's the job. God making his appeal through us. You ask, how are people going to come to know Christ? How are people going to come to know the message of redemption? Through his ambassadors, through God making his appeal through his ambassadors, right? Is God going to do what God's going to do? Yeah, but God's also going to use you to do it. And you're like, not me. That's what Jonah said, and still Jonah was used. And that's what we're going to get to at the end of this, right? You, you realize that you're like, well, not me. I haven't done it, or I'm not doing it. I know, and that's what I'm trying to get you to do so you don't have to deal with what Jonah's about to deal with, right? Are we on the same page? I want you to not have to deal with what Jonah's dealing with. But in order to not deal with what Jonah's about to deal with, you have to understand, like Jonah didn't, that God's sovereign over your life. And God is going to save people, but he's going to use you, either directly or indirectly, either through your obedience or through your foolishness. God is going to use you, even if he has to put you through relentless chaos, he's going to use you to bring people to himself. And I'm saying there's another way. And the other way is just point number two. Don't run away from God's word. That's the other way. Like, don't run away from God's word. And, and that's what, and, and I love this. If you read Jonah, I don't want to ruin too much of Jonah because we got weeks on it. I don't want to give it all out right now. Uh, but what's important for you to know is you can go to Jonah and look at, read verse 1, and then he rebels and he doesn't listen. And then you have all of this whole episode of God getting his attention through the sea and the storm and the, the boats about to get shipwrecked. He almost, he put other people's lives in danger because he wouldn't listen to God. And they were throwing their goods over and they like, not only may we not survive, but even if we survive, we're not going to have enough food to eat. I mean, this is the situation he was putting people in. Uh, and then uh, he makes them throw him over, and they were very convicted about that. Right? We can't just throw a man overboard. He'll die. Right? I mean, he put these people in a position uh, of conviction because he was running away from God's word. But even within that, God used it to turn those pagan people to think about God. But, but here's the whole point here. Right? Go to the, you read the first verse, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah rebelled and ran. Well, if Jonah would have just done what he was supposed to, you could literally erase, I don't encourage you to erase any of the Bible, but you can erase chapter 1 and chapter 2 and go to the chapter 3 or the end of chapter 2, and it says again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God said, now go to Nineveh and preach. And then he did it. What I'm saying is you can, you can get out of verses, chapters 1 and 2 if you just do what God says the first time. 
But so many of our lives have to include Jonah 1 and 2 because we're so stubborn and we won't do what God's word says the first time. So we have to have a 1 and 2. God has to tell us what to do. We rebel and God has to get our attention because he's gracious and he wants us to be in his will. And we have to have chapters 1 and 2. But I'm saying there is a way for you to not deal with chapters 1 and 2 in your own life because you just start with chapter 3 and say, God, whatever it is, I'm just going to do that. That means you can't run away from God's word. And it starts with understanding that you're in, you can't run away from God. Did you know that, anybody in here? You can't run away from God. Flip to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you're in your Bible, just kind of open to the middle. Uh, and the closest one wins a prize. I'm kidding. Uh, but one, Psalm 139. 139. You've got to understand, in Jonah, which is interesting because Jonah had access to the Psalter, right, this psalm. Jonah had access to this in his life because David wrote this. And David was alive quite a bit before Jonah was. So this was circulating even in, amongst the Hebrews in Israel. But this is, if he would have only read this, he probably would have saved a whole lot of dis- misfortune in his own life. And I hope that you will save a lot of misfortune in your life by reading Psalm 139. Start with me in verse 7. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? That's a good question. Like, where can I go from your presence? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's just underground, like the grave. That's another word for the grave, the pit, right? If I go to the pit, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. I mean, think about God's sovereignty over darkness, right? I mean, you literally can hide from someone in the dark, right? You want to get away from people, just turn the lights off, right? But here we have the psalmist saying, even the night is day to you. I mean, that's like you can't escape God even if you try to hide in the dark. Like you can't get away from the sovereignty and the imminence of God. I love this, verse 13. We all have this plastered all over our accounts over the last couple months. For you formed my inward parts. I mean, you can't even get away from God creating you. Like you think you can run away from God? He literally put you together. Okay? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I love that because, you know, me and my wife are having our first child in November, and we're having to go and get these ultrasounds, and they're like, oh, isn't, isn't he beautiful? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he looks great. And, they, and, then they, and then they say, he looks just like you. And I'm like, great, and that's nice. So, but all you can see is like this mushy outline of gray pixelated picture. And that's the best we get, right? In 21st century, I mean, with all the technology, that's the best we get. But I love this. This is what God sees. This is what God's doing. God wove you together in the depths of the earth. Uh, it wasn't hidden from you, and it was being made in secret, and your eyes saw my unformed substance. Unformed substance. Like, literally, God sees you even being made at, before you're born. Like, you're not getting away from God. I love this part. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Pay attention to that. God made you, and before you were ever born, he wrote in his book the amount of days that you would be alive, the day you would die, and everything in between, and everything you should be doing in those days. He literally has every one of them written down. 
before there was ever any one of them. And you wonder and you ask, does God have a plan? He, he wrote it, and you were not even born yet, and it was still a plan. And then you wonder, well, why does God care what I do? He literally wrote the book on your life. Yeah, he cares. And then you ask, well, why, does, like, why should God convict me and send a storm in my life when I decide to go to Tarshish instead of Nineveh? Because you're his. He, he, you literally, you are his. You're his creation. He wrote the manual not only for your life but for all creation. And he gets to do with you what he wants to do with you. I mean, that's biblical teaching, right? That's what the Bible teaches. He literally wrote the book on your life. And so it, it does make sense. It wouldn't make sense if the Bible says this and God didn't care what you did with your life. It wouldn't make sense to read this and for you to flee to Tarshish and God say, See, when you get back, I'll just use someone else, which is what so many of us believe, right? So many of us believe, yeah, well, God can use someone else to do that, or God doesn't need me to do that today. It's like, he literally wrote the book on your life, and he ordained you to do it today. And when you don't do it, it isn't that God didn't realize you weren't going to do it, but he already created a way to bring you back into his will, into the book that he created for you. That is a big, giant word called God's sovereignty. And you have to understand God's sovereignty. If you don't understand God's sovereignty, you're going to be so confused when the ship at sea is about to break apart because you're going to be like, why would God do this? It is God because he does those things, right? He's a gracious God because he doesn't let you sail away. He's a gracious God because he wants to get your attention and bring you back to himself. That's why God is gracious. You can't outrun God. And when you see yourself trying to run away from God, you just need to stop, right? You need, to, you need to turn, and you need to pray to God. I mean, that's what you need to do, right? You don't have to get to your destination of sin to feel like you have to stop. So many people want to do that, right? They're like, you know, you see yourself running away from God, and you say things like, well, I'll just get to the end of this and see what happens. I'll see how it shakes out. Don't see how. I know how it shakes out. I've read the book of Jonah. It doesn't shake out very good for you, okay? Just stop where you're at. If you're in the middle of the sea, just stop and say, God, bring me back to you. Just stop. Don't get to the end of that story. Let God get you to the end of that story. Don't run away from God because you can't. Because what I want you to see is I want you to see God's response to Jonah's rebellion. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. It says, but the Lord, and verse 4, obviously in Jonah 1, verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. God's sovereignty. Who hurled the wind? I need you to tell me. Who hurled the wind? Who? God. Not Mother Nature. Right? Not the trade winds. Not a meteorologist. God. Like, God hurled the great wind upon the sea so that it would create a mighty tempest, so that the ship would threaten to break apart. Here's a problem that we have in our understanding of who God is. Many of us do not have a space in our mind, in our theology, for God to do something bad and chaotic in your life in order to bring you back to himself. And that's a big mistake in our lives because when God does that thing, it confuses the mess out of you and you don't know how to respond. And I'm just saying that's a lack of biblical understanding because it is God's way to bring those things into your life to bring you back to him. And so what I'm saying, what the Bible's saying, is you've got to realize and make room in your understanding of God that he would not only allow, because so many of us, that's where we'll go. Yeah, I get that God would allow those things, but he wouldn't do them. He wouldn't be the one that instigates them. The Lord hurled a great wind. Like, he instigated that. Like, nothing was going on. His trip was going great until God intervened, right? 
What I'm saying is you have to add space that not only that God would allow something bad to happen because sin's in the world, God would instigate something bad to happen to get you to back to where he wants you to be. And if you would take time in your life to add that understanding to your understanding of who God is, it is going to change the way that you respond to adversity. It's going to change the way that you respond to trials. Because here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every single time something bad happens to you, it's God trying to get your attention. Okay, I'm not. But here's what I am saying. There's a simple equation that you can use to say, I'm pretty sure that was God getting my attention. Does God's word say something, A? B, you're not doing it. C, something bad happens to get you to look back at his word and do what he said in the first place. There's your equation, right? Your equation is saying, I know God's word tells me to do this. I'm literally not doing it, and then this thing happened. Your simple equation that Jonah is seeing right here. God told Jonah to do something. Jonah didn't do something. Eat, come in, God. God now says, hey, why don't you come back and do that thing I told you to? And Jonah says, I'm on my way. Okay, that's the equation. And all I'm saying to you, keep room in your life to understand that God will do that exact thing to you. And that's a gracious thing for God to do that. It's a gracious thing for God to destroy anything that you would find comfort in apart from him so that he would bring you back and comfort you in the middle of his will. Right? Come on, church. That's good stuff. All right. If you believe the Bible is true... You have to believe that God uses calamity and chaos in your life to move you into God's will. And if that's the case, you need to write this down for point number three. You need to expect God's divine intervention. Expect God's divine intervention. Or you have to expect that God, like if you're running from God, like and something does happen, you shouldn't be like, oh, why would that happen? You should read the Bible and say, of course that happened. I have a gracious, merciful God who wouldn't allow me to run away from him. I have a gracious God who would allow these things that would bring me comfort otherwise, and he would completely destroy them to bring me back to the only real comfort that I should ever have leaned on, and that is him. Jot down one last verse. Philippians 2, 13. Philippians 2.13. You should expect God's divine intervention because of Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you hear that? Because the problem is when, when this phrase, when we use this in our own lives practically, we make it sound something like this. For it's God who works in me to will and work for my good pleasure. That's how we read that verse most of the time. But that's not at all what it says. It says, for God is working in you. That God has a plan. God is bringing it for fulfillment. God is using you specifically for his redemptive plan. Specifically, he's working in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is conforming you to will to work for him. Do you get that, right? A lot of times it's not your will to work for him, just like it wasn't Jonah's will to work for the Lord in that moment. But what did God do? He worked in Jonah to then start willing to work for him. Because he wasn't willing, but on the bottom of the sea, in the belly of the well, he threw out one of the best prayers I've ever heard, and he was pretty willing after that, right? He is here to will that you would do things for his good pleasure. And he's here to work in your life, for your life to work for his good pleasure. 
So it only makes sense when you're not working and willing for his good pleasure that he would divinely intervene to get you back to exactly what he wants you to be doing. And I know there's some of you in here who have never started doing what God's wanted you to do. And you don't really understand that grace and mercy and, and I call it a love tug, right? That God's bringing you back to him. You never felt it because you've never felt anything but the chaos and calamity of God. And you have this weird view that God is this calamitous, crazy God. Uh, and anytime you think about him, something bad may happen. Okay, because, you, because the Bible teaches us that that's what God does to his people. If you're really his people and you've never followed him, I'm sure that's what your life has looked like. Because God is continually trying to get your attention and get your attention and get your attention to bring you back into the middle of his will. So if you're one of those people who said, you know, I just feel like my whole life has just been calamitous. And you also can tell me, and I truly, truly, truly have never done what God's wanted me to do in my life. Here's what I want you to do before you leave today. Stop. Repent. That just means apologize. Tell God you're sorry. Right? And today, start doing what God wants you to do. And, and it is primarily to Focus on the redemptive plan for people, first in your life and then in the lives of other people. So start thinking about other people. Start thinking about your kids who need to know the gospel. Like, why aren't your kids at kids' camp? Right? Why aren't your students at kids' camp? Right? If you really care about their souls, you're going to put them, you're going to put them in those situations. Well, all I'm saying is you need to begin now thinking you're going to do today. You're going to allow God to draw you back into his redemptive plan for people. And if, and if that's something you question, like why would God intervene? You have a whole, the Bible, literally, the whole Bible is literally God's account of his divine intervention to all humanity. Like, that's what the, the whole Bible is that way. I was actually trying to find Bible verses about God's divine intervention. And I'm like, the whole thing is God's divine intervention. I mean, literally, the first words of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The biggest divine intervention that ever happened is God intervened into time and space and created the universe. And then puts man and woman in the garden, and they rebel. And again, God intervenes in the garden, goes and they, he slays two animals, clothes them, and covers them. Slays, I want you to even see how God inter, in, intervened into the Adam and Eve's life. What is required for the remission of sins? According to Hebrews, the shedding of blood. Even at the very beginning, we see God's redemption and his atonement through he slayed two animals, he clothed Adam and Eve because they were naked and they knew it and they were afraid and they were ashamed. And God slayed two animals that were completely innocent and never did anything wrong, took that, clothed them, and covered their nakedness. God intervened in their lives. Okay? Galatians 4. Right? At the fullness of time, God sent his son. To redeem those who are under the law. God intervenes. The whole Bible is a record of God intervening. And so as Christians, we don't only believe that God intervenes. We look forward to God's intervention. We expect God's intervention. And so what I'm saying, if you're someone in here who is, you've been having these struggles, I'm saying you need to understand that God intervenes. Now, if you're someone in here who's noticed that God intervenes, trust that God's going to intervene even in, when you're in the middle of his will. And what I mean by that is you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, but you don't know how they're going to respond. Trust in God's intervention. That God will bring people to himself. Why? Because he's intervening in people's lives. And I want you, if anything, this morning, I want to leave you with the expectation that God's going to intervene in your life specifically because he desires to use us, you and I, as a part of his redemptive plan.
for the world. Pray with me. God, we do come to you. Get in awe, truly, of how you decide to work, that your love and your mercy transcends our temporal human understanding of mercy and love, that your love accounts for calamity, that your love, God, will allow and even initiate disaster just to keep us on the main thing, you, to keep our minds on the only thing that isn't shifting and isn't failing, and that is you. And that in keeping us aligned with your will and your good purpose and your good pleasure, that you would allow us to be useful to not only do your plan in our lives and in our families, but you would use us in your redemptive plan for the world. God, I pray here for Compass that we would be a church known in this community as uh, those who are focused on your redemption. Those who are focused, God, that on the whole gospel, the judgment and the deliverance that we could be a gospel-driven church who preaches the whole truth and doesn't leave any of it out, and that we would have such a grasp on your word, God, that we would, uh, God, we would invite whatever calamity that we need in our lives to keep our minds on you. I pray that that's how we trust in your sovereignty, that we would rather have your calamity than our own personal built peace, that we'd rather have you, God, intervening in our lives than ourselves trying to intervene to make everything work out for us. I pray that we would trust you in that way, and I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.